Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. As a voice actor, creating your own stable of characters is invaluable. Here's a brief compilation of some of my recent voice attitude work. I like to use this one, da-da-da-da, and I also like to use da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's really none of your affair. Let's talk like an American. I am an American. With no affect. I keep the energy, but I take out the accent. I put a big smile on my face, and here I am. The possibilities are limitless. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio tidbits we find all over the world. The airwaves, the internet, audio festivals on far-flung continents. Where there is sound, there are our ears. Listening, and then giving you the best of what we hear on ReSound. You are what you are. You are unique. That's why we call it a voice print. Everyone has a voice and an attitude for that voice as unique as a fingerprint. I've always thought that for every great actor, there is one great role. One role that he or she was born to play. A perfect fit. So much so that the actor doesn't really have to become the character. The actor just has to let the character out. Today on ReSound, we feature the work of a producer you might not have heard before. Uh, well, my name is uh, Sean Hurley, and uh, I'm uh, 41 years old, and I'm married, and I have a son who's three and a half, and I live up in the mountains of New Hampshire. Sean has an alter ego, a character named Sherwin Sleeves, who's become central to Sean's radio storytelling. My name is Sherwin Sleeves, and I'm 79 years old, and... I go out each day, and every day is just another small adventure. First, Sherwin was a voice. This voice. But implied in that voice was a whole character that seemed to emerge from Sean's imagination fully formed, as if he'd existed there for years and only needed a chance to slip out. Sherwin is a wise and old actor and adventurer who used to travel across the country performing in shows. He's also a consummate musician and storyteller, among other things. Sherwin was born, as it were, a couple of years ago. Sean had taken a break from his usual work as a writer and medical transcriptionist when he and his wife had a son. Sean became a stay-at-home dad, and all his writing took a back seat to raising his child. A year after the birth, he felt like it was time to get back to something creative. Friends had told him that they liked his voice and that he should try radio. So Sean looked into a possible career in voiceovers, and that's when he discovered his inner Sherwin. In order to do this voice acting thing, you have to create a demo reel, which I didn't have, and I hadn't ever done any work, so I had to pretty much create a little imaginary body of work. I just sat in front of the microphone and improvised lines. You know, I'd do a character with a high voice, a character with a British voice, and I would just, you know, say whatever came to mind. <clears throat> Yes, so let's just get all these boys tidied up and we'll get them down to the uh, stables. Get them on their horses. I want to do a ghost. I don't know why I want to do a ghost. I would like to do a ghost voice. Why is that? Why do I want to do a ghost voice? Do I want to work in ghost movies? Blah, 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 blah. blah. Let's talk like an American. 
I am an American with no affect. I speak blank flat tones. Yes, you know, I was thinking last week, Mr. James. And it was while I was creating this thing, you know, doing various voices and doing Shakespeare and reading books and every little form that you have to sort of submit. Uh, I came up with this voice, uh, the Sherwin Sleeves voice. In a world where sorrow makes... In a world, in a world, in a world where people put suntan lotion on their arms and legs and go sit out in the sun. I don't go out. I don't put suntan lotion on. I do, I go to the beach, but I don't sunbathe. I don't swim. I just was instantly uh, captivated in some way, or or it was like I was watching uh, or listening to this other person tell a story. I wouldn't mind swimming. I wouldn't mind laying down in the sand for a while. And it wasn't really a story I was familiar with, and it wasn't a story I expected, and it wasn't a story uh, that that I could have written as myself. But mostly I go to the beach just to have that experience. You look out over the water. It was a voice outside of myself, but it was very similar to the in- internal voice that I'd always sort of followed as a writer. You're not exactly sure what you're looking at, and you sort of scan the horizon. Sailboat, tanker, island, fog-enclosed island, or distant shore. Am I seeing France? What's out there? I wonder if I'll see a fish jump, a whale, whether there's sharks in this water. Is anyone in danger? <laughs> it was a, just a strange experience of it, of it appearing outside and being, you know, in the room with me. It sounds like almost like you were like channeling him. It does, but it it's not as complex as that. It's almost uh, one one of the things that I think I've learned in this experience is that. My own personality is kind of an invention that I came up with uh, as I went along, you know, when I was a child into my teens. And the person that I am is just sort of a series of rules and behaviors that I'm familiar with. And when I started doing the Sherwin Sleeves character, I realized that I could use my same, you know, internal organic structure to come up with a whole new set of rules and come up with a whole new system of of beliefs and behaviors and things like that. So it, it was almost like a sense of the potential for some somebody else to sort of live inside, alongside you, which I know sounds kind of uh, split personality, but it's really, I don't know, it's like taking a computer and having different uh, operating systems. So can I ask a question to Sherwin Sleeves? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> well, who are you and where did you come from? Well... My name is Sherwin Sleeves, and I'm 79 years old. And I spent most of my life on the stage in various cities. I was never a very popular or well-known actor. Just made my way by. And I suppose that my character, who I am, comes largely from my experiences as a stage actor the characters I played, various voices that I needed to employ. So, who I am and how I think comes from that world. Hmm. All right, I I won't go into this too much or too long, but which statement would be more true about Sean and Sherwin? Freud would have a field day, or it's possible to overthink this kind of thing? Are you speaking to me still? (laughs) Uh, I'm speaking to anybody who's in the room. Oh, it's definitely possible to overthink. From my point of view, it's it's just playing. It's an extension of, of a type of play that we mostly stop doing when we're, you know, 8, 9, 10. It's just doing a funny voice, but doing it with some intent and playing with some intent. And Sherwin Sleeves is just a strange version of me. That was Sean Hurley. 
With Sherwin and multiple other character voices at his disposal, Sean has created a wide variety of audio works. The one we're about to hear was inspired by two old books, Trees as Good Citizens, published in 1922, and Trailer Ahoy, published in 1937. The piece contains two voices, author Charles Nash, played by Sherwin, played by Sean, and Charles Pack, played by Rick Ganley, a DJ at an FM rock station in New Hampshire who happened to hear some of Sean's work and became a friend and collaborator. Now, don't worry if you're confused about who's who and what's what. Just listen. Here's Restful Shady Places. My dear Mr. Pack, I don't know if you're alive, but I thought it was interesting that your book, Trees as Good Citizens, is kept right beside mine in the library. Kind regards, Charles Edgar Nash. Dear Mr. Nash, Neither of the books adjacent to my book at the library were written by you, nor any of the ones beyond or on the shelf above or below. Not sure what's going on here. I am alive. Regards, Charles Pack. Dear Charles, my book is called Trailer Ahoy. It is about the joys of automobile house trailering. Your book is at the end of the shelf, and mine is leaning against it. Good news about your not being dead. Dear Mr. Nash, I don't know what kind of library you have there, but ours uses the Dewey Decimal System. My book is about trees, not trailers, and is thus kept with other botanical and forestry books. Would you be so kind as to state the purpose of these inquiries? Dear Charles, what's a misunderstanding? I'm speaking of my own library here in my room, but I should say that every library I've ever borrowed from has followed this pattern of your book next to mine. Dear Mr. Nash, not one of the 14 libraries I've polled maintains the arrangement you suggest of your book next to mine. Let us end this here and now. Dear Charles, in Trees as Good Citizens you extol the virtues of the tree, chiefly for the shade it provides. In my book, one is made happy by laying down inside the darkness of a house trailer. I can only speculate that Mr. Dewey has a section called Restful Shady Places. Dear Nash, as you are well aware, there is no section in any library anywhere in the world devoted to restful shady places. I feel comfortable in stating that no library on the earth keeps my book against your book. They are nowhere, anywhere, touching together, and I mean nowhere. Dear Charles, this is a little awkward. I suppose I was thinking that since our rooms here at Shady View are next to one another, that you might find it congenial to keep my book next to yours, as I do in my room. Since you are not able to get out of bed, I took the liberty of putting a copy of my book right next to yours on the bookshelf in your room. Rest assured, Charles, copies of both of our books will be set into the cool clasp of your hands before the casket door lays its tree and trailer-like shade upon you for the perpetuity. Which, my good friend, is giving me a very fine idea for a new book for our little section in the library. Restful Shady Places, produced by Sean Hurley, featuring Sherwin Sleeves. The story was submitted to our 2008 public audio challenge, Radio Ephemera. So as this alter ego partnership developed, Sean began a podcast serializing Sherwin's adventures. The podcast, called Adams, Motion, and the Void, has an unusual sound, rhythm, and atmosphere that's built on a foundation of mood and character that harkens back to a previous era of radio storytelling. I think of it as modern, old-time radio. And I also think of it as almost a type of film without any film. As though you went to the movie theater and and nothing came up on the screen and yet you started hearing something. I think what what I'm sort of interested in is kind of creating with the music and with the stories a somewhat cinematic experience even though it's it's sound-based. Here's one chapter in the ongoing saga of Mr. Sleeves. It's called Saro's Balloon.
I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. I'm glad I am. I'm a real life Yankee Doodle who made my name and fame and book just as Mr. Doodle did by riding on a pony. I love to. Where will we go? You know the shore will keep us afloat for a while. Only till the sea tells secrets to each and everyone that comes to be taken underneath by everything that you'll never see. slept. I couldn't sleep and yet persisted in the old iron bed, tossing one side to the next, as though there were all these other sides waiting in a pile. The mattress went like the sea beneath me, roughly calm in places, and then flung up in a swarm of waves and others. The room was hot somehow, so I dropped the window. Then my blankets were sweaty and I kicked them to the ground. And then I was cold in the mild room, and I shut the window and remade the bed and crawled in, whereupon I had a weary moment of passable comfort before it all started again. And then, of all things, in the awful delirium, I imagined that my pajamas felt dirty, and so I arose and changed and then returned to bed, and then finally giving up, I went out in the living room and swooned on the rocking chair, not rocking like a lizard, haphazardly doing nothing in the dark room, but staring out the window at the starless night, as my bare feet frosted to marble on the cold floor. I went out to the porch in my nightclothes. The sky was feverish and clotted with clouds. The moist night breeze passed to my blood, and I shivered and returned to my room and lay down again in the bed and then almost instantly rose, for the third or fourth time, now with a true feeling of anguish, and I found myself in a pool of nonsense, fishing along my rack of clothes and pulling out my suit and tie and a white shirt, dressing myself in the blackness. What was I doing? Where was I going? I was angry with sleep. I was done with it, and that's all I knew. I turned on a light, and then tipped it over and unplugged it, and then wrapped the cord around it, strangling it before rolling it beneath the bed, somehow wanting to keep myself beneath the brim of the oil-dark night. And then I was outside, feeling the warm, flu-like breath of the coming storms. Mild pockets of hot and cold, tossing all together, a feverish feeling, and I suddenly felt myself both depressed and vitally alive. A hundred yards or so from my cabin is a rocky field that hardens down in a broad face toward a cliffside edge and gives me a quiet and vast view of the surrounding mountains. To the east of my cabin is a twenty-acre field, troubled here and there with small spruces and a strange tall meadow grass. I was glancing between these two places, the cliff and the field, as they were my only real destinations. But a soundless flash of lightning over the ridge brought me to the cliffs. I stood on the open slab, watching the storm file its bright position over the valley. And it was then, as the lightning made a temporary theater of the clouds, that I saw it floating soundlessly massively downward, not even far away, the gondola hanging below, 
and the dangling vines, some heavy with sandbags, others whipping in the breeze. The dark, hot air balloon lowered and then passed over me, not twenty yards above my head. I followed hard upon it, stumbling over the rocks as though it might disappear if my eye did not hold it in place. The air was quieting and the wind stalling backwards, and I reached up and took hold of the slick rope lines. I tugged at the heavy, falling craft, and we too walked along in this manner, man and hot air balloon, as though this was how we always did it. We moved quickly out over my eastern field, and the basket began to shush upon the tall, seedy tips of the grasses. The wind ceased, and I drew my entire weight upon the drop line and brought the gondola and myself to the ground. There were teasing flares in the distance, and then a very fine, fast, humid rain began to fall. I lifted myself up off the earth and peered into the basket. In the momentary blitzing of the light I detected, laying on the bottom of the gondola, the vaguest outline of a body. Someone was sleeping, or someone had died, and I suppose I felt it was the latter. basket rustled against the long grass of the easterly field. The rain fell harder, but the huge, overhanging tower of the balloon itself kept me dry. In the bottom hold of the canvas and wood basket, I had detected the shadowy form of a collapsed body, and the likely scenario had quickly taken shape. I pictured him driving out to some launching landscape, a great flat meadow, and then watched in my head as he rose, happily up. And at some point thereafter, he succumbed to either a heart attack or aneurysm. And there too, when floating along, dead in his formerly fun sort of diversion, it occurred to me at that moment that balloonists most likely followed some protocol that involved a larger awareness of their flight. A chase team, perhaps, to watch from the ground, or some official place to file one's flight plan. And then, because he was here, alone and unfollowed, I guessed to myself that my balloonist had gone up into the sky for some other reason, that he had not told anyone, and a further layer of desperation 
fell over the scene. My plan was simply to extract the poor balloonist, lay him or her down upon the earth, rummage the basket for any possible identifying materials, and then debark as quickly as I could. If the dead balloonist was light enough, I would carry him or her back to my cabin and call the police. If not, I would simply be making sure that the unfortunate body was transferred to the earth as the restless balloon itself would certainly be whisked away in the surging storms that were almost upon us. There are hundreds of miles, thousands of miles of wilderness, and only these small pencil lines and splotches of towns, and it was likely that if my balloonist didn't get off at this stop, his body would be lost to his family. I walked around the basket, quickly assessing the rim with my fingers, hoping to find some on-board lighting system, but there was nothing but the wide, smooth leather and canvas edge and the occasional cold metal clip. With some difficulty, I got one leg into the basket, and then the other as I slowly settled my feet into the spaces on the basket floor where the body was not. I stood thusly in the balloon, making sure that there was some bit of permanence in the stillness of the air. The storm and the distance continued to flash and rut, and it was raining hard here, but the wind was stable and slight. The pressure was down, and the raindrops were like weak tendril strings hanging over the balloon. I ducked into the basket and found a small box attached to the basket side and rummaged this until I found what I was looking for, the cold, heavy cylinder of a flashlight. I turned it on. The harsh wedge and halo of illumination from the flashlight showed a soft cheek and closed eyes. The skin was tan and not nearly as old as I thought. The lips were overly pressed together and kiss-like in their presentation. The shoulders beneath my knees were wide and high, and the body itself, although in concertina on the cramped basket floor, seemed long. And so, without confirmation, I supposed the balloonist to be a tall, trim, middle-aged man with long brownish hair, clean-shaven. The wind began to rattle at the balloon, and I felt the urgent need to get the body out and onto the ground. I am old, but I have always been very strong in this particular way of being able to lift things. I reached down and took the limp body into my arms. He was surprisingly light, and I had the impression that he must have hardly ever eaten. Perhaps he'd managed to starve himself in the emptiness of the sky. I wasn't shocked. As I rose into standing with the body slung in my arms, to see that the balloon had, in the brief interlude of my discovery, risen privately up into the air, and that we were blowing maybe ten feet over the dull, rocky tip of Market Mountain. We were aloft, and the storm was a close neighbor, snapping its lightning jaws at us, growling out its heavy winds. We were lifting into the sky, and though we were rising, I was overwhelmed by the strange feeling that I was falling through the winds faster and faster. I crouched down onto the basket floor, frozen in my kind of bewildered fear. And then the real shock came as the body in my arms stirred and the dead balloonist pushed off me into a kneel, and then, with difficulty, stood. Where are we? he said. I had no idea what to say to this question, so I answered it simply and straightforward. We're in New Hampshire, I said. I pointed off to the distant city lights. That's the town of Lemon. And my name, I said, introducing myself, is Sherwood Sleeves. I came to this country
His name was Andrew Lee. After a brief observation of the world, he sat back down into the gondola. I could tell now that he was completely intoxicated. He drew a bottle from his pocket and sipped. Where are you headed? I asked. Not to be poetic or anything, he said. But I'm going along with the wind. Literally, going wherever the wind goes. And I'm getting out wherever the balloon stops, or pops, or crashes, and dying if it crashes hard, I suppose. I wondered how long he'd been traveling, but he couldn't seem to recall or remember how to remember, and instead just blinked heavily and then drank again from the bottle. We remained quiet for a time, as he seemed to be gathering his strength for an announcement. My daughter, he said, Finally, as though summing up some long story. Your daughter, I repeated. Her name was Sarrow. She was nine. I used to call her Sari. Or Sarabelle was sorry sore. That's what you do with your child's name. You play with it because... because they love it. He reached back behind his head and hit a switch, and a weak yellow light shone to my side. He stared at me. Oh, obviously, he said. There's an introduction like that. She's dead, if you couldn't guess. I said I was sorry, as one must. He passed me the bottle and I drank from it, and he pulled another bottle from some hidden compartment, and we both sat, sipping whiskey. It was altogether comforting. Blood cancer, my God, he said. The wind and the storm was blowing so hard now that raindrops were occasionally spinning in upon us. She knew, he began. We both knew she was going to die. Just a matter of time and we spent it together like that, waiting and sometimes pretending it wasn't there. She liked to sleep under her bed, but I'd sleep on the floor, and early in the morning she'd wake before the sun came up, and I'd feel her hand upon my face. They'd lift her up, and we'd go out for a long walk in the woods. At first we were walking together, with her in front, and then soon I was carrying her. We got a little backpack, and we set her in that so we could walk farther, because that was about her favorite thing to do, go out into the woods and just keep going. She loved balloons, and so we often were doing things that ended up with balloons. Not hot air balloons, just helium balloons. Air balloons. She loved birds, anything that flew. Kites, paper planes. And soon she wanted to put a note in one of the balloons, and then maybe it would fly off to some mysterious place. Just off into the wind. That 
It was exciting. She loved that. Andrew Lee took out a long cigar and lit it and then passed it to me and then again withdrew an extra for himself. The whiskey burned my throat, but I found that I needed it. For whatever reason, his notion that I would enjoy these pastimes with him was quite moving. We smoked and drank together, and the storm pushed us along. Andrew Lee continued, A real dream, though, was for a pen pal. So there was a time, then, we got serious. We sent out a few hundred of these balloons, all with different notes and our home address. She didn't let me read any of these. They were private. She folded them up and put them into the balloons and was very watchful. We got one of those helium tanks. That was my job, filling the balloons up and tying on the strip of vinyl string. But we never heard back. I guess no one got them. All these balloons just went up into the air with her little special notes. I tell you, I was a little angry. Someone must have gotten one of these notes, I thought. Sorrow is so sweet, I'm sure the note would have been compelling. I'm sure if I saw a balloon coming over into the yard, and I went to it and got a note from her, I'd know it was from a special person, and I'd write back, wouldn't you? Yes, I said, I would. You would, wouldn't you? Something like that. Sometimes it's important to go out of your way to respond to such things. Notes and bottles, notes and balloons. That's not something to ignore. It's a special thing, an honor, to receive such a thing. But Sarah wasn't really upset about this. Only that she wasn't going to have this little experience that she hoped for. Because what it was, secretly was that she was hoping for a kind of boyfriend, even on paper, a thing of love letters of a kind. She was only nine, but she was getting there, and we spent a lot of time thinking about this someone on the other side of the balloon, this little boy opening it up and reading a note, and we pictured him sitting down at his desk to write her back, and she called him Charlie, and soon we talked a lot about Charlie. She was too young for a boyfriend, like I said, but she was just starting off with those kinds of feelings. And at night, I'd lie down on the floor beside her, and we'd say good night, and she'd say, I wonder what Charlie will write. And then so, I'd pretend like I knew, and we'd fall asleep that way. Dear Sarrow, I would write. I was out walking in the woods, which is my favorite thing to do, when I saw a balloon stuck up in the tree. I had to climb way up, but I love climbing trees. The balloon popped when I grabbed it, and I was happy that there was a note in it. I was so excited, because I always loved secrets like that, like treasure maps. So I read your note way up in the tree, almost at the top. If you send more balloons, I'll get those messages too, and I'll write you back, and maybe someday we can go walk along together in the woods, and I'll keep all the pop balloons with me, so if we ever meet, that's how you know of Charlie. Wake from your sleep The drying of your tears Today we escape, we escape. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And get dressed before you You're listening to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're sampling from the work of Sean Hurley, a writer, musician, and voice actor who invented Sherwin Sleeves, the hero of today's story, Sarrow's Balloon. We were deeply intoxicated. Andrew Lee and I, on the myriad secret bottles of whiskey that he'd stowed in the gondola walls, and smoking the stubs of his cigars, and we were both now brave and standing in the basket, watching the lightworks of the night storm and the lashing long braids of rain. Two drunk brothers, arm in arm, watching the splattering assault of white light as it melted over the mountains below us. Each flash of lightning seemed to show us an entirely unexpected view. At one moment we were high in the clouds, with an endless forest beneath us, and in the next we'd find ourselves low over a long, rain-splashed lake. If there was no wind, no storm, the balloon would most likely have landed. It was growing weak and soft above us. I noticed soon enough that Andrew Lee was shivering. We were both soaked and the high winds cut to the skin. He rolled some blankets down, and we sat on the basket floor, and then soon we were sleeping in this drunken heap, both of us still somewhat smoking, the cigars dying slowly between our fingers. It felt to me that some huge expanse of time had passed. I woke, cold and strange, with a feeling of great worry, and a handful of cigar ash. Andrew must have seen some change in my countenance, for he spoke to me. Storm's gone. I made coffee. I smelled the black smoke of the liquid, and I opened my eyes to see the cup hovering before me. I took it and drank, unable to see any mechanism that could have assisted in its production. I stood slowly beside him. I think we came around, he said. Came around, I asked. I think we went in a circle. That big lake in the distance is familiar. I saw it yesterday. I think I did. I keep thinking that, though. Ever since I started, I keep thinking. I'm just going round and round. Does it matter? I asked. No, no, not to me, he said. I'll take whatever's given. If the winds don't pick up, we should land in the next few hours. I suppose. I'm no expert, so that might be wrong, but I'm hung over, and I like to guess things. I looked over the half-bright landscape. It was still early in the morning. The light was grey in places here and there, and crooked, but the horizon was pink, and the mountains glowed. What will you do when we land? I asked. The wind stalled, and the sun appeared yellow and peaceful. The balloon descended, sharply, weak, unable to stay aloft. I'll look around, is what I'll do, Andrew Lee said. After she died, I went off into a lot of the different neighborhoods, looking to see if I could find one of her balloons. And I just realized that you can't find something like that if you look like that. You have to follow it the way it went. And you have to give up and admit that there's no way you can find something like that on your own, using some method you have. You can only wander and hope. So that's, that's what I'm doing. Wandering and hoping. I know I won't, probably, find anything. But it's in me to search for these balloons, you see? It's in me deep to find one of her notes, to see the sort of subtle thing that she wrote, whatever it was, 
It had to be kept secret from me. The balloon was falling now in a stony straight-down way, more like a parachute than anything with any natural lift. The trees reached toward us and the earth drew out its hard soft bed. We would be on the ground soon. Andrew was searching around with the binoculars, indifferent to our coming, hard landing. He said, I knew everything about her, because that's how close our life had to become. Except for that last part, and it hurts me not to know it, like I'm not allowed to love every part of her that ever was. So I want to know as many parts as I can, and I guess this is just the only part that's left. And maybe someone would say that I don't need to know it, or have it, that I shouldn't. But what I'd say to that is if there was a way to love someone you loved in a whole new way, in a way that you didn't know, well, I'd say that was important to find that out and valuable. So there's this way for me to meet my sorrow one last time. I fall on my knees and I pray to thee. Come and stand around with me, little girl. Come and stand around with me. It's look up, look down that long, lonesome road. And it's hang down your little head and cry, little girl. Hang down your little head and cry. been a strange moment of disappearance as we descended down through the canopy, and I watched the tips of the oaks and the green lengths of the pines reach toward me, and then as the basket hit and Andrew Lee and I crashed together, it all washed away like a dream, and we were both there, sitting on the floor of the basket, terribly jostled. I touched my hands to my legs and rotated my head, wondering if some awful injury would shortly disclose itself. Andrew Lee likewise checked himself. It was as though we had both misplaced our minds and were now feverishly checking each pocket for its keeping. Our hands moved about and we searched for punctures and breakages and injuries. I felt compressed and whiplashed and singly beaten, as though one huge fist had struck my entire body. We were not speaking yet. This was an ongoing, momentary retreat into a primitive mode. We glanced at each other after our initial checks, but then receded back into our shock. After a while, I stood. The balloon above us was soft and elongated, with the branches and sticks pressing themselves deeply into its skin, as though to suction off the delicate air that the balloon itself might lay down upon the earth. I got out of the basket, and in the transfer to the ground I stumbled and fell. The earth was iron-hard and unmoving beneath me. A form of motion sickness looped over my lungs, and I was on my knees retching. It was a loose forest of young trees, with stands of birch and the slender trunks of the pines spaced at wide intervals. I could hear a distant brushing of river, and I was thirsty, and my mouth and throat were miserable with the sick, and I hastened toward the moving water. It was still early morning. The birds sang above me, and I moved like an old, lost Indian through the forest toward the sound of the moving brook. I was surprised, as I got closer, to see a man kneeling over the stream. Andrew Lee had somehow beaten me there. He was cupping water to his mouth and sighing loudly. I knelt beside him and drank. He moaned and then threw his head down into the brook and stayed there a long moment in a kind of shocked baptism. He rose up dripping. I feel bad, he finally said. I could still not break the silence. I should say here, that I'd been holding, myself, onto a bit of unfortunate information, trying, in fact, to smother it away from view. Now, with the frenzy 
and sudden fresh start of the balloon crashing so fiercely down, I could not stop thinking about it, but that I had, while out walking some weeks ago, in my eastern field, nearby the place where I'd brought the basket to its final position, myself found the small, wrinkled body of a balloon. It was yellow and old and torn, and there was a long strip of blue vinyl tied about the knot. I had picked it up, thinking to discard it, when I felt the small shape beneath the rubber. And so I had found, perhaps, one of Sarrow's notes, and sent up balloons. Of course, when Andrew Lee told me his story, I had immediately recalled my discovery. But my initial theory went along the line that the balloon and the note that I'd found had most likely been from some other person. That though it might be unlikely to enclose a note inside a balloon, it was more unlikely that the searcher for such a balloon would get so close to its discovery. This was my form of denial. Because, in fact, though I had opened the note and looked at it, I paid no attention at all to its contents, and could only recall a small scrap of white paper and the pretty round handwriting done in purple ink. But not a single word of it was remembered, and I could not find a way to confess the circumstances of my discovery to Andrew Lee, nor the abuse I had done the note by way of my indifference to it. Whether the news itself would be of an importance that might surpass my own failure to give attention to the message, I couldn't tell. I had thought perhaps to lie to him, to tell him some story, that I had found his daughter's balloon just yesterday, and in fact had begun to write her back. It was a beautiful note, I would say, and obviously she was a wonderful and clever girl. But this quickly exposed itself as a kind of desecration, and so I said nothing, and instead grew toward the idea that I would help him find his balloon, that I would become a searcher with him. So it hung all around me like this, like old dead flesh, and became my own contribution to the tragedy, which is when I came to the decision that I must tell him that I had found it, for this would give him some hope at least that others of these balloons and notes were scattered around, and that perhaps he would hate me for not living in that kind of graceful way that might best properly receive the natural beauty of a message from a small girl as delivered by way of the sky. This is the one I will try This is the one I will try This is the one I will try To be lonely the one I just know it this is the one I want to show it this is the one I would die for to be lonely to be lonely I turned to look at him. My first words following the crash would be a confession, a kneeling confession by a small stream. The birds were singing. My mouth hung open, but nothing came to my lips. Nor did there need be. Andrew Lee was staring at my jacket, and then he slowly reached toward me and began to pull at the tip of a blue vinyl string peeking upward from my pocket. The yellow balloon itself plucked free of my pocket, and Andrew Lee took it instantly to his face like a treasure, weeping and then smothering over his face with his hands and arms, as though he could not permit anyone to see him now. He struggled then with the small torn piece of rubber, scrubbing for the note that was not there. My hand quickly went to my pocket, and I pulled the note free. 
He fell upon it, weeping further, covering his face. I stood and watched him for a moment, until the privacy and intimacy of the scene overwhelmed. I roved away into the neat lanes of the forest, and then cut back along downstream toward the river. I would follow the water. I assumed it would lead eventually toward the large lake we'd seen from the sky. I was walking through the woods like this, in the suit I'd thrown on the previous evening, in my fit of insomnia, the same suit I'd worn two weeks ago when out walking in the easterly field. Why had I not read the note, I wondered. It was the sort of thing that I would normally find acutely fascinating. The note should have struck me powerfully, and yet, somehow, I had known it was a private thing, not meant for me. That Sarah's note was to be delivered to her father, and that I was only, in the whole scheme of things, not much different than any of the other balloons she had sent up, and that perhaps, in the great mystery of all things, this was really what we were, after all, each of us, just these confused and soft vessels, conveying a message of love between those who share their lives together, who will always yet remain such strangers to us, who give us things whom we spend time with, whom we do not know, whom we love still, anyway, regardless, somehow. All of a sudden, it happened, no one saw it coming. I love you A chain reaction, an explosion A politician on the television Sarah's Balloon, produced by Sean Hurley, starring Sherwin Sleeves, whose adventures are chronicled in Sean's podcast, Adam's Motion and the Void. To hear more of Sean's work and to see pictures of the wise, adventurous, and yes, completely fictional Sherwin Sleeves, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. I, I wanted to kind of uh, say goodbye to both Sean and Sherwin. Thank you both for talking with us. Well, uh, thank you. That was uh, that was really nice. And um, I also quite enjoyed it, although my part of it was rather brief. I didn't have that many questions to answer. And, uh. Well, as Sherwin, I'm sure knows, there's. There's no such thing as a small part, only small actors. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 